When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Pantheon Podcast presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you the Devil's Music. Hey there, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to The Devil's Music, a Pantheon podcast. A little bit about me. I'm a punk rock witch from Hollywood, California. I've had a lifelong passion for rock and roll and the occult that started when I was a preteen. In the 70s, I was one of the first punks in L.A., and as a teenager, I worked at the Whiskey A Go-Go, started producing shows, and made a Xerox fanzine called Lobotomy, which led me to write for every major rock publication you could think of. In the 80s and the 90s, I fronted three bands. I'm a best-selling author with eight books out and more on the way. For the past 30 years, I've toured around the globe to teach and perform dance. You might have also seen me acting or dancing in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. Look for me in the new Go-Go's documentary. To find out more about me or to book a tarot reading, go to my website, pleasantgaiman.com. I'm really excited to be part of the Pantheon Podcasts network of rock and roll shows. Everyone here at Pantheon tells stories about the music we just adore so much, each and every one with a different twist. Find them all wherever you listen to podcasts at Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Pandora, anywhere you get your favorite podcast fix. And head on over to PantheonPodcast.com to share a show with a friend. Or be damned to purgatory forever. Hi, you guys. This is Pleasant Gaiman. You're listening to The Devil's Music. Today, my guest is the fierce and glorious singer for the Avengers, Penelope Houston, one of the first American female lead singers in punk. She's a queen and an icon. Her career has been long and varied, spanning decades. She's done solo work for ages, but now the Avengers are back and kicking. They just got off a Euro tour and are touring up and down the West Coast, showing the youngins how it's fucking done. 
Archinology. <laughs> Hi, uh, that was a, I like that introduction. That's awesome. Yes, we're hoping to show the youngins how it's done. Yeah, I mean, you know, how can how can how can you not? <laughs> <laughs> Where I mean, I'm always amazed. I remember ten years ago or so, maybe more, when I went and saw um, Iggy Pop and the Stooges playing at the Warfield, and it was his seventieth, it was his sixtieth birthday, and I remember seeing him and being like, "Oh my God, how can anyone do that?" <laughs> like. When they're, you know, having turned 60 and there's, he's still jumping in the audience and going nuts. And um, then I passed 60 and now I am, not that I stage dive at all, but I am still doing the Avengers and it still brings me joy. So. I know, you know what? I can't believe sometimes that um, like all of that stuff started for us between like, I mean, for all of us, the collective early punk rock, like around 45 years ago or 46 years ago, it's insanity when I think of that. Like it's yeah. it's longer between now and punk rock than it was when we were younger and the 1920s. Do you realize that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? It's well, so time collapses, I guess. It's weird because when you're a kid, it just things just seem like they're taking forever. I'm like, when am I going to grow up? And then when you're a grown up, it's like, where did the time go? Where did the years go? What's happening? Especially the last couple of years. I keep telling people, you know, that I left my job at the library uh, a year ago when it was two years ago. Um, so <laughs> I can't, the last couple of years have really accordioned into some kind of strange you know shrunken time period because of covid so um yeah time has always been odd and it's just getting stranger yeah i think it's just totally bizarre and um i completely still remember like so many scenes so many scenes from like early punk rock like like it, it goes through my head like a movie and I can I can remember what like everybody had on what everyone was doing who was playing <laughs> like what happened and 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 I mean I have that with other periods of my life a lot like flashes of it but like just that punk rock I don't know it felt like it was such a, a special time and such a unique and wild time that will never ever fucking get repeated because that was I think like the last time that anyone could do anything in, in quote, quote, youth culture and not have it just immediately co-opted, you know? Right. Yeah. It was so free rangy. <laughs> they were actively uninterested in us and co-opting our scene. <laughs> it was like, nobody, nobody got signed. I think the Dickies were the first band to get signed, but they were. And everyone was really happy for them down here. Yeah. But I think one of the good things about that is that people had to put out their own 45s. Nobody could really afford to record an album and then put it out an album. And that meant that of all the bands, you got the two or three best songs of that band on a, on a 45. It was kind of crystallized and distilled into the best of. And nowadays people can just, sit in their bedroom with their guitar and record an album and then put it on the internet the next day. You know, it's kind of like unedited, you know, hasn't faced the test of fire. Yeah. Or like, I mean, also, especially lately, like a lot of people have, have not been playing out that much because of COVID or at least, you know, for a while they weren't, you know? So if it was a new developing band, you couldn't even like rehearse during that time, which is crackers to think of. Oh yeah. Yeah. So hard for people. Do you hang out with, um, do you hang out with a lot of young people or a few young people? Um, I don't know that many young bands. Uh, I have a few friends that are younger musicians in the Bay area but I don't know a ton, but uh, since you brought it up, we're actually, um, we've got some young ones coming up on stage and singing with us. Um, 
a couple of members of the Linda Lindas are going to jump on stage in LA and, and uh, sing Teenage Rebel and one other song uh, with the band. So that's going to be super fun. They're kind of inspiring. I, I love them. I love their spirit. And uh, there's some people in, um, in the Bay Area that I like, but not, uh, I don't know a ton of new bands, I have to say. I, I, I don't know a lot of them, but I know a few of them around here in LA. And the, one, the ones that I know like are really cool now and would have been like really cool back then. It's, it's got the same kind of spirit, not necessarily the same sound or anything, but um, just like really cool, interesting stuff. What was it like yeah. when you were just in Europe? What was what, Who were you playing with and what was that like? Uh, well, one of the, my favorite people that we played with is called Reverend Beatman. And he's oh, I know from, who that is. Do you know Reverend Beatman? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. He's not young. From, he's not young. He's no, older. No, from the Miracle Workers. I knew yeah. him from them. He's amazing. He yeah, played with us in Hamburg. And we had a great show. And he's his... He was mesmerizing and disturbing and like, his stuff. He, I got their new album. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Um, and there was this band in Dresden, uh, an all-girl band called the Ar Ad Rats. And they were really amazing. And But they sang everything in German, so I'm not really sure what their lyrics were like. <laughs> But uh, they just switched instruments whenever they wanted. And there were a bunch of different people singing. And you could tell different people writing the songs. I love them. Um, I don't know what will happen. I'm not sure how easy it is to be a, you know, a brand new band in Dresden. But um, they were great. And then uh, some of the people I saw, in we played Rebellion, which is in Blackpool. And it's... Um, it's a white... No, it's... It, it's in its 15th year. It's a gigantic three-day punk rock festival oh. in, in the UK. And I got to see um, Polly Murray of uh, Penetration. And we'd played together. The last Avenger show ever, I think, was with Penetration. Well, the last, one of the last shows. Um, back at the old Waldorf in 79. And then uh, the woman who, she was in the raincoats and she sang and played guitar and she kind of blew my mind. I posted a little short uh, clip of her playing um, solo there. And then there was like, you know, a bazillion uh, big punk rock bands and English bands and stuff. And there was a one all-girl band that was Korean, and they looked really interesting, but I don't know what they sound like. Um, that was a bit of a blur. And uh, I don't remember the, oh, the Nervous Triggers, or Nervous Trigger was a band we played with in New York that was very funny. It reminded me of the Weirdos. Oh, cool. Yeah. And on, on the Tomorrow Night, um, well, not Tomorrow Night, when this podcast comes out, but the LA show that we're doing, we've got Elvez doing his tribute to the screamers, which I'm just dying to see. And then before that, there's a new band called or newish band called Rugburn, And they remind me of the suburban lawns. There's a couple of women in the band, um, but just the way they, the songs are and the way the singer sings just reminds me of the suburban lawns, which were uh, kind of, Nobody ever did what they did. Nobody could ever do that. It was just they were so unique in their yeah. Time. That that was like that was like a total quote quote art band prototype band. There was yeah. a, there was kind of a lot of that going on in LA with like like the Deadbeats and and just some other crazy ass experimental sounding stuff. Yeah, but I felt like Sue Tissue was really unique. Her singing style and her oh yeah. Lyrics. She and just her whole presence was so like like uncomfortable but really like aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 She was she was genius. So let let's um 
let's talk about your early days of punk. But um, I think we got to take a little break first. So we're gonna we're gonna listen to some music here, and I will be right back with Penelope Houston. Penelope and I are back. So, um, yeah, tell me, tell me, like, like, um, didn't you, didn't you move from Washington to San Francisco to go to art school? Yeah, I grew up in, uh, well, partially grew up in Washington State and um, near Seattle. And then I was going to school in Bellingham. Mm -hmm. And there was kind of a hippie school up there that I went to when I was 16 years old. And then I came back to Seattle and I met the tup I met this, the Tupperwares who became the screamers and um, hung out with them for a little while. And then I got into art school in San Francisco. So I moved down to San Francisco on the, the dawn of uh, 1977. It was like new year's Eve of, of 70, the beginning of 77. And as soon as I got there, um, I was trying to, you know, focus on my, my art and my painting and school, but the whole thing was starting with, um, the Mabuhay gardens and crime and the nuns, uh, were playing and just started going out, I guess at the Mabuhay, because they had a kitchen, you could go there if you were 18 yes. or older. So we all got in there when we were underage. I'm sure shit. there was some underage drinking going on. Oh yeah. That was like the whiskey um, down here too. Cause of the kitchen thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, started going there and then pretty early on, like may perhaps, um, uh, I, these, these folks from Southern California were up there. Um, Danny furious and Greg Ingram, and they were starting a band and they needed a singer. And I just came into their rehearsal place and got behind the microphone while nobody was around and put on some records and started singing. And I fell in love with the amplification and just being super loud. I was like, I'm going to be your singer. I can do this. They're like, okay. And then um, after a little while, we found Jimmy Wilsey and we started uh, playing the Mab. And I think our first show was in June. 77 and yeah from there it just kind of blossomed and we loved coming to, to LA and Hollywood because um those guys were from here so they knew a lot of people and I think there were people in in Hollywood that pretended we were an LA band <laughs> <laughs> well that rumor has persisted really that's crazy I never heard that but, but I guess it's because I knew you were a San Francisco band, but the first place, well, well, first of all, I didn't, I didn't realize that you'd known uh, Tomato and Gear from when they were in the Tupperwares. I had no idea. I just knew oh, that, yeah. the, that the Screamers knew like everybody who was cool. And I was like, how did, how did they figure out the Avengers before anyone else did, you know, because I remember meeting you at the Screamers house and I thought you were so incredible and so um, beautiful too. And I also, <laughs> this is going to sound so sick. I was like, I was like um, telling um, my lobotomy co cohorts, Randy and Teresa Caricas, I, I was saying like, she should have a baby with Billy Idol, like as though like the peroxide <laughs> would carry on in you guys' gene pool. <laughs> People just always call us twins, me and Billy Idol. No, but I, I mean, I mean really you know, it was the haircut and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was back in uh, 75 when the Tupperwares were playing in Seattle. 
I um, dressed, everybody would just dress up for all the shows. And I dressed up in this kind of, I had my hair slicked down and like a little mustache on. And I was wearing a brown shirt or something very, you know, I don't know, Eagle Scout or like I was their bodyguard I was just trying to look tough and I was like their teenage bodyguard um there's a hilarious photo of, of me and Tommy Gear from that from that evening from that show oh my but God, they didn't do very many shows it was the scene up there was really pretty tiny at that time so I guess it wasn't that hard to find them and then when they moved to LA and I and I moved to San Francisco and started, uh, we started the Avengers. The first show that we did um, was in a warehouse and we were just doing cover songs. And then I think like a week or so later, we had our first Mabuhe show. And during that week, I came down to LA and I was hanging out with Tomato and Tommy and I told them about it. And they said, that's great, except you need to write all your own songs. You can't do cover songs which is funny because they did a few cover songs at the time, but um, we came back up and we wrote like five songs for that first show in a week, some of which um, survived and some which did not survive, but um, they were a direct inspiration for the Avengers becoming original songwriters. Otherwise you'd be doing like where the boys are. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we did Pissing in a River and Vicious by Lou Reed and um, so a Kink song, maybe a Rolling Stones song. I can't remember all the covers, but yeah, you know, it wasn't bad stuff, but I, I saw their point in writing original music, the importance. Well, when, when your EP came out, when the Avengers EP came out, um, this happened... This happened sort of, um, it happened a few other times, but not every time. Like um, everybody in LA was listening to it at the same time. I mean, not everybody, oh, the, everybody in the punk scene. Like it happened. The Danger House EP? Yes. And it wasn't, oh, yeah. it, it wasn't just because it was from Danger House. It was like that happened. There was a point when like when the Clash's first album came out, you could hear it coming out of every window in the Canterbury, um, it, you know, and it's like, it might as well have just been on one loud speaker, except that you could hear different songs going on from when someone put the record on, but that, yeah, <laughs> but that was, that was, everyone was listening to you guys' EP. And um, I mean, Danger House was so great when you think of the amount of, of stuff and whose stuff that they put out. It was, it was, it was incredible. Oh Yeah. And the other thing is they just started the label and started putting stuff out. It wasn't like, it wasn't like a big deal. It was just like, you know, we're going to do it and we're going to make this many records and try to sell them and stuff. And nowadays just even getting a a record pressed seems like it takes three years. Um, And then getting it distributed is impossible. And it's just, it's such, it was such a different time. I mean, word of mouth was so important to, getting records out there and into stores and such. Yeah. Nowadays totally. it all seems so hard. <laughs> like anyone starting a record label has got to be either a billionaire or crazy. So, yeah. And they were just a bunch of guys from the Midwest. I know. Totally. K- KK and Rand McNally, um, Pat Garrett, they were both like um, f- from uh, Kansas or Arkansas. I can't remember. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere but, out there. Yeah. Out there in, in the, as they used to call it, Indian territory. No, like they were just, <laughs> but, but they, they, um, I don't know that, that the stuff that they put out was so cool. And everyone that we knew that was putting records out, no matter how they were coming out was, was so great. It was a really, it was like really such a, free for all creative time that like, I don't think that'll ever happen again like that, you know, because there was, there was built in audience, even though it was small. And then like, you, you know, people that you knew worked at record stores and they would just order it. And then, you know. Yeah. It was a, seemed like a much more innocent time, really. People 
had energy and they would start stuff. And I mean, you still get that feeling like if you go to smell or some of the, you know, younger bands or people that are starting their own zines and stuff, there's still some of that energy around, but it does seem like the world has just gotten so complicated you know with the internet and people self-recording and stuff it's just like there's so much out there it's so dense and back then you just look for a flyer on a pole and then you knew where you were going to be on friday night totally (laughs) but it 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 used to shock me though how sometimes even when there wasn't flyers like just how everybody knew where a party was at a certain time you know, like everyone would just show up. Like, I still don't figure out oh, yeah. how we did that. Was it like that in San Francisco for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, word of mouth. It was a whole different thing. And the other thing was there were no cell phones. You couldn't text anybody. You couldn't send an email. It just had to be, I guess you could call someone up on your regular phone. Or, you know, the phone down the hall from where they lived, because a lot of people didn't have their own phone, um, and just say what's happening. And then word of mouth would get out there. But now we can't even imagine going anywhere without our cell phone. Like, what if somebody couldn't make it or they're running late? How would you ever meet up? You know, it just seems insane that we've become so dependent on technology when we used to be able to just follow our nose to where the show or the party was. I, t- I totally agree. I mean, a- any of that, like, I remember like if, if I thought someone was cool and interesting, you know, like writing their number down on my hand or sometimes, you know, like in a <laughs> Sharpie, you know, like the Sharpies yeah. I always carried to make a fake band stamp with. <laughs> yeah. Um, but sometimes I would memorize some people's numbers that, I would call a lot so I could call them like shit faced from just some random phone booth somewhere. Too. <laughs> I know. And now we can't even remember our own phone numbers. <laughs> Technology has replaced some, some part of our brains. It's, it's kind of sad. I know some people, some people ask me um, if I, if I, I have felt like sad or, or regretful or missing out that there wasn't social media in those days. And and. Like the first time someone asked me, I said this and it's become like a pat answer now. But I was like, dude, if there was social media in those days, most of us would still be incarcerated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's hard. It's just kind of impossible to even imagine. We were all social. You know, we had our own. We had just different methods of communicating because that's what kids do. They find a way. So, so um, I wanna I wanna ask you about um opening for the Sex Pistols. But before you talk, I just have to preface this with like, um, Teresa Caricas, the the photographer. Just just for you guys listening, the famous punk rock photographer, and um me and Brad Dunning and Randy Kay and a bunch of other people. I mean, basically there was a mass exodus up to San Francisco to see the Sex Pistols. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, with like a a million clown cars, like broken down beater cars (laughs) full of people going up like that. And so we wound up, um, we were staying at the Off's house because Kid Congo was with us and, um, you know, he knew them really well. And uh, we all took acid before before going going to um to the show and so they had a box of kittens and we were coming on to the acid and I could hardly tear myself away from them because they were like babies like you know <laughs> six six week old kittens and we were so high that there was like a giant line all the way around the corner um in front of uh the the winter the winter garden right Winterland. Winterland. Yeah. I keep calling it the Winter Garden, like it was the, that Broadway fucking theater that used to be called that. <laughs> but yeah, but so there was a line all the way around the corner, and we were so high, like 
I don't know about the other ones, but Kid and I just kept walking and just walked right in and no one even asked for our tickets. I mean, we had tickets, but <laughs> but we just went in and we got in like right before you guys got on the stage. And, and you were amazing. Um, I think we, we walked in kind of a little bit before that, but um, that show was so fucking nuts. I was... My feet weren't on the ground for most of it because everyone was, oh. was, um, yeah. I mean, now we know how dangerous that is with all the trampling shit that's gone on at, um, at concerts, but also in those days, I think it was a lot safer because people would pick you up if you were falling down or, you know, and, and also in San Francisco, there was a lot of hippies there <laughs> at the yeah. sex pistol show and they were being like really polite about shit. <laughs> But yeah let's, let's i remember being quite terrified when i got out on stage and uh looked out at the audience and i looked for my friends because i knew all my friends were there yeah. and i just saw this sea of faces and then i would spot somebody in that sea of faces and then a second later they would have been like just disappeared like you know where did they go it was so crammed together and and uh it, there's a there's a video of it on youtube that was shot um with multiple cameras and it sounds pretty good and um you can tell at the beginning of that set my voice has this little like uh, like a little bit of a shake in it when i was talking between songs and then by the end of that set we were really uh triumphant and um i did a kind of hilarious version of i believe in me where i'm like you know <laughs> questioning the validity of everyone's you know, following the sex pistols and like, <laughs> um, it's just, it's, there's some funny lines in it. And we, I felt like we had conquered the stage by the time we were done. Um, and then I went out during the sex pistol set, I decided to go out into the audience instead of watching from the side stage. And I got out there and it was the same thing. I could take my feet off the ground and not move and then also i was completely covered in sweat and it was other people's sweat <laughs> it was like ah this is too tight so after a song or two i just went back backstage and watched from the from the side stage but that was a really a, a moment i think a lot of people decided to start a band that night <laughs> at least a lot of people have told me that 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 started punk bands um this, that they came down from Seattle or they came from the suburbs or something. They came to that and they were like, Whoa, I could do this. Maybe, maybe that's what they said. But of course that was the biggest show forever um, for the pistols, for us and for just about any punk band. And um, up until then we've been playing to four or 500 people max at the Mabuhe and some other a few other venues but that was uh that was a peak moment i think yeah i mean that was that was like a whole huge um turning point i mean not just because it was the pistols last show which none of us knew but it was that that was like um i mean I don't, I don't even know. That was like the, the exodus, at least from LA up to San Francisco was like the scene in close encounters where everyone's going from, oh, right. from all over, yeah. like to get to the place where the, the ship is, the mothership is landing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do remember seeing tons of, of my LA friends uh, at that show too. It was, uh, but for the pistols, it was probably, a rough situation i think you know i think um sid like od'd that night or something and got revived and um the other pistols were disgusted by it and then it turned out to be you know then they were breaking up and all that so for them it maybe was harder but for us it was kind of a joyful night triumphant yeah. night you know when um when um i i was before the pandemic i was doing live like storytelling series with um 
called War Stories. And then this would be like, like Teresa Caricas and I were hosting it and we would just get a bunch of people we knew on stage and it wasn't, it was a spoken word show, but no one was reading. I put prompts in a bucket, like craziest gig or getting arrested or whatever. <laughs> so everyone would, would just be talking and then, you know, usually everybody could chime in because they knew kind of what it was about. And um, when we were, we that first one we did, Jane Weedland said this, and I, I mean, we were and are like best friends for decades, but I didn't even know this. She, she was like, Helen Killer was with Sid that night, but like, I didn't know that Jane's job was like being that, that heroin driver to where, taking them where they could get like heroin. I had no idea until she oh, said wow. it on stage. Oh, I didn't know that either. I know. I don't think anybody did. I mean, it, that, that was those shows were crazy. Maybe we'll bring them back. Um, now that live shows <laughs> that sounds like fun. They were they were wild. They were fucking wild. Like just yeah. Um, because it sounded like all of that stuff, or even the stuff that we're talking about now, like it's normal to us. But like all of us in that war story show, we kept we kept losing track of what we were talking about because we would be saying something that sounded like just something we all remembered, you know. But then you look in the audience and see all the younger people's just like their mouths were on the floor. <laughs> like, how the fuck did you do this? Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, Kid Congo's book uh, coming out next right. month because I'm sure it's going to be full of a lot of great and crazy stories. Oh, it's going to be. I mean, it's it's totally going to be. Um, kid, like I, I was... I was in on a lot of them and they are, I can, I can just attest it. His book is going to be pure, pure psychosis in the best way possible. <laughs> well, I'm, I've got to read it before the 19th because I need to have an intelligent conversation with him in front of uh bookstore, you know, visitors um, up in San Francisco at green apple. And uh, that's going to be fun, but I, I need to do my homework, read it first. He, I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you a, a little bit of a, a story, like a tiny snippet of one of the stories that's in my book, Rock and Roll Witch. It's right when he had just joined the cramps. When we came home one night and we were going to take acid um, to watch like all the old horrifying horror movies that were always in nonstop rotation on TV. And then mm -hmm. he, he said he had to um, go into my bedroom to use the phone to call Lux and Ivy back because, you know, they, they were now, you know, he was, he was just going to be in the cramps and he didn't want to call him when he was high. But somehow they found out we were high and we didn't know this and we were watching this crazy horror movie. And then I didn't want to say anything because he always thought I was like extremely insane on LSD, which was true. But I didn't want to tell him I kept hearing whispering coming from outside and I didn't know if it was on the movie or if it was like some ghost or something. And then <laughs> I was trying to hold it in and then he he like looks at me and he's like, Do you hear some weird whispering? And I was like, Yes. <laughs> and it took us like half an hour to figure out that it was Lex and Ivy like kneeling below our windows like just like like making little scratching <laughs> noises on it and talking because they knew we were tripping <laughs> oh that's funny that's a good one <laughs> yeah um so anyway i want i want to um switch into another little topic again i i don't know um col color me dim um who who wrote the songs that were on your first um ep was it everybody or was it you or did you do the lyrics or tell me, tell us how those. Um, so car crash, I believe in me and we are the one, um, we kind of wrote them together. Generally often Greg would bring, uh, some musical chords and parts to the band. And then we would start writing songs. And I think car crash, the music from that had, um, was something that maybe Danny and Greg had, had written or played in an, in an earlier 
earlier band they were in. But the lyrics, that was all me. And then I Believe in Me, um, and we are the one, we all kind of wrote together. And I think Jimmy wrote a couple lines of that. And I wrote probably most of the lyrics. Um, but I Believe in Me was a song and still is a song, which just has a chorus. And then I would just make up the three verses that are in the song. And when we went to record it in LA for Danger House, uh, we were at Kitchen Sink Studios. And I'd never, that was our first recording session ever in my life. So I didn't know how things went. We just got up there and they had scratch vocals so that the band could be playing and recording and I would be singing along so they would know where they were in the song. And when we got done with that, um, someone said, okay, now go and do your vocal parts. And I said, uh, that's it. I the, just use those. I didn't want to like try to go in again and do it. I was like, um, yeah, whatever you got there, that's the song. And, and then I think we had like KK and um, Rand McNally and a few different people singing the I believe in me chorus. Um, but those were our, those were all our songs. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now, um, <clears throat> I had car crash going through my head all day today. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Um, who wrote, who wrote the American in me? Uh, that was an interesting song. Uh, I think Greg brought the chords uh, and parts to um, rehearsal. And that was a song that almost just wrote itself right away. It I, so I wrote good. all the lyrics and it just came out of me and it was like, boom, done. And I was like, wow, that's, I don't know where that came from, but there they are. And those are the lyrics. Whereas some sometimes the band would come up with music and I'd be like, oh yeah, Um I'm working on these lyrics. I don't know. And then we would get on stage. We would have a show and they'd be like, let's do that new song. And I'd be like, okay. And so it would, we'd have a, a set list and in there, there would be new song and it would be something. And I would just be making stuff up over whatever they're playing. And one time we actually did a show where there was two places in the set list where it said new song because I hadn't come up with a title or anything. <laughs> And I'd just be up there like, wow, you know, like just letting loose. And, um, but that's not how I prefer to work. I prefer to actually write the lyrics and melody together and, and have them ready for the band ahead of time. But, but I didn't know that back in the Avengers days. I just did. We just did what we did. And it was usually people coming in and with a riff or a bunch of chords and saying this, how about this? And then I would just start making stuff up. So, but occasionally Danny or Jimmy would, would have some lyrics and Danny had a few songs that were mostly his lyrics. And I always know now when I'm singing them, I'm like, yeah, this is very juvenile. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write these lyrics. Yeah. So let's talk about when you left the Avengers and did um, solo stuff, because a lot of people thought that was a humongous departure, but it, it seemed logical to you, obviously. Yeah, I um, I didn't just quit the band and then immediately start doing yeah. something else. Um, I moved to L.A. to work with Renee Dalder on the Screamers movie. And um, I was in saw that and I was writing some songs with Renee and I think I wrote a song with Alex Gibson, who was my boyfriend at the time. And um, some, some of my earliest stuff that was post Avengers, but um, I ended up moving 
back to Seattle and then moving to London for love and getting married. And then when I was in London, I decided I wanted to write some more songs and tried to get a band together. And this would have been like 82 or something or 81. And I remember, I think I was 22 maybe, or I don't know what I was, 23. I, I, there was a band that had an ad out that they wanted a singer and I called them up and, uh, and I said, yeah, I'm interested in, you know, applying for your singer job. And they're like, oh, okay, well, how old are you? And I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm 23. And they said, oh, we're all 22. So that's not going to work. And I was just <laughs> like, what? Um, too old. Remember Carla Mad Dog? She uh, she was over there in England and she was playing in a band called Jimmy the Hoover, which was kind of a one hit wonder um, new wave band of the early 80s. Yeah. And um, she was there, but they had a whole record deal and stuff. And she said they went up to a cabin somewhere in the wilds of England and were doing songwriting and stuff. But I I don't know what came of that. But um, I didn't really start writing songs on my own until moving back to San Francisco um, and putting a band together and starting to learn to play the auto harp. So I could because I didn't know how to play guitar. The auto yeah. harp is easy. You just push a button and strum. So I started writing songs that way, and then I got a band together and was working with them, and then that whole thing kind of slowly built itself up through the eighties until I got signed to Warner's Germany and uh, did a lot of touring over there and had the album that came out on reprise over here. And it was like a slow build took, I don't know, took 10 years or something, but um, yeah, I, I did discover how I like to write songs and it wasn't how we did it in the adventures. <laughs> Oh. It wasn't just new yeah. song. <laughs> yeah, new song. And then later, new song. It's like, ah. Um, Other new song. Yeah, so, yeah, I've kind of developed my songwriting skills and strategies <laughs> since then. Um, well, how, how does it feel to you now, like, being being back on stage doing doing the Avengers? I mean, or or like, how do you feel when you're seeing the audience or any of that? Oh, it always feels really good. Uh, as soon as the band starts, it's like the music just lifts you up and it's so easy for me to do those songs. And a lot of those songs are really still pertinent now, some of the political, more political ones. And it's just... Uh, exuberating experience for me and i feel like a lot of people in the audience they that music was part of their life at different points uh and and it's important to them and the people just really enjoy it so we're having a great time and greg and i have been doing it for quite a while now um but not all the time just you know when we can get some good shows and um We've been able to go to Europe a bunch of times and the UK and do the US uh, a few times. Um, we had a, our biggest tour ever was playing with Stiff Little Fingers. I think it was 30 shows, driving all the way across America, uh, following them. They had a, you know, a, a night, all nightliner tour bus or whatever that somebody else was driving. But that was that was kind of fun and exciting because it was a good match for audience audience wise, but um, I really enjoy it. It's just it feels good to me. I'm sure there may be a point where I'm like I'm done with this, but so far it's really fun. Yeah, I mean it just seems seems like it would be super fun to like to to do that. You know, like. Just um, being with people that you've known for that long, that you know inside out, that you do creative shit with, and then like seeing all how how the young and see it, and st- I don't know, it just seems like really really great. Yeah, uh, throughout my career, a lot of uh, women have come up to me and said, you know, I started writing songs, or I, I joined a band, or I started a band because of 
of you or your songs. And that's always really gratifying. You know, I feel good about that. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that that is seriously amazing because when you were doing it, there was almost no women as there had been for like the decades of any other popular music before that, unless it was like, you know, the girl singer in a, in a big band or something. Yeah. I think there were more women in early punk than there were um, a few years later when hardcore started. Oh yeah. Um, And then I feel like it was that kind of blew open the doors and, and anybody was allowed to try anything. And that was one of the exciting things about it. Yes, I think so too. And it it also just disturbs me that sometimes when I'm talking about punk rock to people, they think I'm talking about hardcore. They're like, there weren't any women there. And I was like, no, you don't know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was definitely a different time. Yeah. Um, Was there anything you want to say to our um, esteemed listeners? Um, I would invite people to check out uh, the music if they don't know it or some of my um, solo music on Penelope.net or Bandcamp. You can listen to all of it uh, for free before deciding if you want to get it or not. And then also, if people are interested in um, the other artistic part of my life um, is painting, I have a website, PenelopeHouston.com that is all my fine art and paintings and prints and stuff. Um, oh yeah. We didn't even talk about, about that. that. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. I, I've been doing it for a while and it's something I've been doing more in the last couple of years when we couldn't go touring and all the venues were closed. I started doing more and a lot of it actually is uh more more of the more recent stuff from the last two years is is on my Instagram page, which is Penelope Houston. And um, I haven't got it, all that stuff up on, uh, on the website, but I've been doing a lot of uh, mug shots. So that's been something I've been using my time for since we couldn't do any shows for two <laughs> years. And I'll get back to it, you know, after this tour's over, I'll get back to some more painting. But that's another thing that I really kind of love and is carried me through, carried me through the pandemic. You said, when are you going to write a book? Well, it's funny. I always thought that I would do uh, an Avengers memoir and I would um, do it with the Hernandez brothers who do love and rockets, especially Jaime because his style is so suited to punk rock. Yeah. Um, but I never, you know, got it together to make that happen, but I see a lot of people writing and, um, you know, it could happen. I could still do that. Uh, I might need your bucket of prompts. From, uh, <laughs> I could help I might you out with that. Prompts, but, yeah. Um, I'm so, you know, it's crazy because this is, or will have already happened by the time your, your podcast is out. But I'm really excited about all the people that are coming to this LA show that I know from different masks. It's like a mask reunion. And, and, uh, it's I'm really excited about it. It's going to be so great. And that is always inspiring. Like just we're playing right now this West Coast tour with Hector Penalosa on bass. Um, our regular bass player lives on the East Coast and couldn't make it. So um, he's got so many great stories. You should probably do a podcast with him. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He okay. has a great memory and has a ton of interesting stories and his and you know, it crosses from the zeros to when he moved up to, to San Francisco and he was in MCM and the monster and, um, flying color, all these different kind of periods that I was around for. So it's like stories from all over the map, which is great. So yeah, more people and myself included should probably be putting these stories down in some form where they can be archived you know kept for the world no i know because they're they're so good i mean that's one of the reasons why i like doing this this podcast because at least people can hear 
hear everyone talking about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I look forward to reading your book too. (laughs) And also if you do a memoir that's more specific to that time, I would love to see that. Oh yeah. I I am going to do that. I've got such a long list of shit to do. I need to, I need to look at the cloning. <laughs> I think that you do too, right? Yes. <laughs> Come on, yeah. let's get it together and clone to ourselves. I always, like I go on tour and I'll like bring stuff for doing art and drawing or whatever. I bring my journals with me and then the tour happens. It's like, when did I think I was going to be writing in my journal or drawing or anything? So. I do that every uh, fucking time. I'm not kidding. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I've been doing that for like for decades. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can barely just get the pictures up on Instagram from the tour. Like a week later, I'm just like, "Here are my pictures from Berlin." It's like I haven't been there in two weeks, <laughs> but but here they are. Like I'm there right now, and people are like, "Oh, have a good time. Go here. Go there." I'm just like. Uh, I'm home you know sorry <laughs> yeah I wouldn't have but written that book if it wasn't for can. the pandemic you know like that my oh yeah that was that was like I was just like okay now's the time yeah well that's good it's been a amazing couple of years with everything sort of stopped and people having to figure out different ways of, of living but here we are. We're all still alive. We're still yeah. doing it. Yes, we are. Anyway, you guys, that was the amazing Penelope Houston. That was so good to have you, Penelope. Yeah, it's really fun talking with you. Um, check out check out her Bandcamp and her website. They'll all be in the uh, podcast the episode description and if you are lucky enough to see the avengers at any point do not say no to that opportunity (laughs) (laughs) thank you all right it's been fabulous talking to you yes it's been great thank you you are so welcome my dear um i will be uh, talking back at you guys on the next episode of the devil's music and till then um keep on keep on sinning keep on having fun keep on listening to good music bye bye <laughs>
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.